interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. That was a good break. I tell you, the noise and decibel level just kind of raised high, and so it's good. Uh, We have uh, a privilege uh, following this session to head over to the Family Center uh, for some lunch. If you have not signed up for lunch, there's plenty of food. Please go to the welcome desk. It will cost you $5, but it will be one of the best investments that you've ever made. Uh, $5 uh, will get you a lot over there. I sure appreciate uh, individuals who have been putting all of these things together. And there's a a list in your handout, and so uh, we'll acknowledge them along the way. But uh, we're grateful that you have chosen to spend this uh, day and uh, really weekend together. So we're going to talk about entertainment. Now... That doesn't mean Bill's going to come up here and entertain us. But what he's going to do is uh, highlight some of the, the, the parts of our culture that uh, keep coming at us in our face. And uh, is there a theology of entertainment? So let's think about that and let's pray as Bill comes. Father, one of the great truths of your creation, is that you have called us to enjoy you and all that you have made. Father, thank you for the gift of joy, the gift that we are able to see individuals and see your world uh, in, in ways that bring us great joy and pleasure. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us these gifts that that we might be enriched with the beauty and the reality of all that you have made. And we come and ask that you would encourage us as we see the threads of Scripture and engage with our culture, which seems to be entertainment-based. Lord, help us. Help us to see the things that give us pleasure from your eyes and in your way. So thanks that Bill is here. Uh, Bless him as he speaks in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite rock critics is Grail Marcus. And um, he tells a story about how he was starting out, which I think is very important for the subject that we're about to discuss. I was just starting out as a rock critic, though after Altamont, I felt 100 years old. You remember that was the uh, concert where um, they hired the Hells Angels for the security, and of course, somebody got killed. Um, I thought I ought to know where Cream songs come from. Now, um, Cream was 
the very short-lived but very remarkable um, group that Eric Clapton started in the 60s. And um, Eric Clapton was so enamored with uh, African-American blues that he uh, tried to um, literally imitate the, the, the music and particularly the songs of Robert Johnson and his solos. So I felt 100 years old. I thought I ought to know where Cream songs came from, so I bought the Robert Johnson album, King of the Delta Blues Singers, included as a part of the bizarrely named series, Thesaurus of Classic Jazz. It was one of those moments when you get your life changed, like picking a college course that leads you to think for the first time or walking thoughtlessly into a room and falling in love. I took the record home and put it on. I knew nothing about country blues. I knew almost nothing about the Deep South in the 1930s. I hadn't read Faulkner. All I had was the memory of some Life magazine photos and Richard Wright's autobiography. All I had really was a liberal upbringing and a lot of social realism. I brought virtually no context to the record. I simply took it home, put it on, and had my life changed. I heard a sound I'd never heard before, but which for some reason I connected to. It was what Herman Melville called the shock of recognition. And for me, the shock has always been the realization that you have recognized something nothing could have led you to expect to recognize. Now, I believe that in that wonderful moment, where Grail Marcus discovered the remarkable Robert Johnson, he was entertained. And he was entertained in a way that is not the uh, common shrift of today. He was entertained because something told him that there was a reality there that was better, maybe higher, maybe deeper than the reality that he had experienced hitherto. And I believe that this is the heart of the biblical concept of entertainment. We recognize something that is more real, deeper, more basic, and not always connected with the present world than what we usually think. Now, this is rare because of the noise out there. And I think we will, it's a truism, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but we'll recognize that so much of our 21st century modernity, particularly in the West, is there to conspire against our being entertained in the right way. You may think, how strange. Aren't we faced with an entertainment industry that is doing nothing if not pulling us into itself? I think that's right, but I don't think that's what real entertainment is. We're, um, we're surrounded with sound and noise. Michael Novak, a number of years ago, wrote, wrote a, a very thoughtful essay in Hemispheres called Let the Questions In. And his bottom line is that we have a world where it's hard to ask the big questions, like who I am, where I'm, where I'm going. And he begins by saying he has a friend uh, named Ed, 
whose whole life plan consists of keeping questions at bay. And Ed has a two-part philosophy. One, keep yourself surrounded by sound. And two, always keep moving. When he's driving, he keeps the radio on in his car. When he walks into his house, he lives alone. He turns on the stereo or the television. He never allows himself to be alone with himself. Drumming fingers on the window pane. It's as if he senses a presence at the window. He doesn't like to go out into the country. He avoids the mountains, the wind, the quiet fields. They make him nervous. He likes to keep busy. And then Novak goes on to say a strange thing about life in America. It often seems designed to block out our questions. It's so busy. It can rush us into death before we've ever had a chance to stop and think. We may never really stop and ask why. Blaise Pascal, the remarkable French apologist who's one of my heroes, although writing in the 17th century, might as well have been describing our own day. He wrote, Life for most is a search for continuous or continual diversion, for distraction, for keeping the mind occupied. Now, Pascal's examples may be a little different from ours, although I wonder. He talked about gaming and chasing skirts and the like. Um, but um, in his eloquent um, apologetics, known as the Pensée, he describes a way of life which um, already was uh, something like keep yourself surrounded by sound and always keep moving. What we're doing when we succumb to this um, is we're bargaining. Uh, we're bargaining away our souls for the, for the noise and the false entertainment of it. And it's not simply that we have a culture which fosters so many distractions, which we certainly do, um, but we, we have built up expectations where our, our fulfillments, the things that we say um, accomplish us, uh, are very, very thin and, and, and very, very superficial. Um, one of the ways we do this is we promise people that we can have it all now. Uh, we're, we're bombarded with uh, visions of success and beauty and power and possessions and prestige. Uh, we're told to go for it or just do it. It's all right there, just beyond our fingertips. Um, we live in a world where expectations have been our daily food. And one characteristic of our time, as um, Dick Kyes writes in his very thoughtful book on heroism, is an extravagance of expectation. Dick writes that um, here we are in a world that, um, because of images, tells us we can and therefore we must. Because of technology says we can and therefore it's good to do it. Daniel Borston develops this theme, the very thoughtful former librarian of Congress, um, in his book on images. He says, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. 
We expect compact cars, which are spacious. Luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to be inspired by mediocre appeals for excellence, to be made literate by illiterate appeals for literacy. We expect to eat and stay thin. I gave that one up a while ago. Um, to be constantly on the move and yet to be ever more neighborly. To go to the church of our choice yet feel its guiding power over us. To revere God and to be God. So this world of extravagant expectations feeds our sense that we don't have to ask the big questions because we can get what we want and um, it's available to us in a contradictory way. Of course, it isn't true. Um, we know this in our heart of hearts, but we often forget. We don't live as though uh, we remembered this. A couple of years ago, there was a very thoughtful um, editorial in the Herald Tribune, which we still read, by Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. And it's called, the title of it is Dot-Com Parent Finds a Lost Truth. And it's a very poignant essay where she, this woman is the co-head of a small internet startup with a lot of, uh, of, of money and a sense of accomplishment. And um, she, um, she writes that she was having lunch with a moderately interesting banker. <laughs> She'd gotten up at 5 a.m. to catch the Eurostar from Paris, um, and my daughter had a bit of a cold the night before, and I was wondering if she made it to school. And she continues to talk about how she's torn between her success, her frenetic pace of working, pretty pleased with herself as a businesswoman, and on the other hand, her family. After a year of frenetic travel, 150 emails per day, not a single penny in the bank, and a still distant prospect of any form of relief. I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? Is it really going to work? <clears throat> All this stock is valuable only on paper, and even that depends on the day. Am I not a little too old to spend precious mid-career years on something that may not pan out? And then she talks about her daughter. Uh, her daughter turned three when she signed on to be the co-director of this startup. And shortly, she says, she's going to be four. I haven't seen much of her fourth year. How do I calculate what I've earned? How do I measure what I've lost? I've begun to admit and accept my split personality. I'm too much of a mom. Yes, I'm ambitious and like to wield influence. Yes, my kids drive me crazy if I spend more than a day with them both. Yes, I would like to change the world. No, I cannot stand missing the moments when my three-year-old snuggles into the body she came from or laughing uproariously at my son's apprenticeship with irony. And then she goes on to say, I'm not going to drop out completely, but I'm going to start limiting myself severely, and I'm just not going to care so much about the money. 
I don't want to earn sudden millions. I don't want to talk about my company at every single dinner party. What do I want? I want time. Time to get down on the floor and make puzzles with my three-year-old without thinking simultaneously of the 43 things I should have added to my Palm Pilots to-do list. Time to listen to my son's quasi-endless chatter and see in its evolution his growing sense of himself and the world. I want time. Time to talk to my friends on the phone, to organize the long and leisurely dinners animated by conversations nourished by plays and films and friends and that I've recently seen. She goes on to say that after this great decision to pare down, she bumps into this friend who's still on the fast track. She realizes she has something that this friend will never have unless she gets off it. Now, most of us are not um, co-heads of a fast-moving um, company, or a, most of us are not wealthy. But I would wager that most of us are driven by uh, distractions from what really matters. Um, and it might be by modern means of communication. It might be by any any other devices. I have a, uh, a love-hate relationship with the cell phone, as the British call it, the mobile phone. Um, it's a good thing. And um, it is a, uh, it's a thing of, of great usefulness. Uh, we, we traveled uh, to China a, a little while ago, and we, re we re recognized there that the land phone will just be skipped, the landline, in favor of the mobile phone, because that's, it's, uh, it's so much more convenient. Um, but at the same time, there is something about the cell phone that makes us too accessible to whoever. Um, I've often wondered, walking down the street, like Fifth Avenue or, or some place, some big public place, and you see people coming at you talking. Uh, some of them are leaning into this thing, so you realize that they're on the, some of them have that thing that you strap around your neck, and so they're just talking. And, um, you know, it's, I, I hesitate to call it rude, because they're not really um, breaching a strong sense of community that we all have on Fifth Avenue in, in New York. <laughs> but there, there is something about walking down the street that has, you know, we're all in this, in this together. And uh, here's somebody who's from another planet or talking to some other place. And um, in addition to kind of looking strange, um, you, you have to ask, is that conversation so important? that it's uh, better than staring at the fascinating people who are walking with you or looking in the store windows or, or whatever it might be. Um, it gets a lot more serious when you're um, in an automobile or in the train car. We use the train a lot going up to New York because that's where our grandchildren live. And um, except for the silent car on Amtrak, every car is noisy because of the cell phone. And if you eavesdrop on the conversations, which you can't help doing because they usually shout, um, you hear things like, I've just pulled out of the station. Um, did you get my email? Um, you, you rarely hear significant conversations unless it's the exhibitionist who wants to talk to um, or against his or her um, enemy about, you know, why didn't you come home when I said to and wants everybody else to know about it. Um, now, not to rail on the cell phone because they are good things to have. Yet, there's something about our 
accessibility, our modern communications, which can distract us from what Aviva calls the need for time. Um, the more time you are on emails, the more time you are on, on this device that you put to your ear um, and uh, talk to people from another world in, the more it's taking time away from just being. And in what God does to get through to us is he gives us an experience like that of Grail Marcus, where he gets our, he jolts us, he gets our attention. And um, he loves us so much that he will do this uh, sometimes in a, the most unexpected and most surprising way. And um, I believe one of those ways is going to be the joy of entertainment. C.S. Lewis, who I know is the favorite author of, of many people, or one of the favorite authors of many people in this room, in perhaps what is his most famous sermon, uh, spoke lines that we almost know by heart, where he describes uh, the longing for a far-off country. And um, he talks about this in many parts of his writings, but um, he's very close to what Melville called the shock of recognition. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret or inconsolable secret in each of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in the, in the very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. Um, it's the secret of eternity. It's the secret of knowing that there is more than just the noise. It's the secret of knowing that there is a God. Um, and so many earthly imitations of this, of this longing, of this secret, of this knowledge, are short of the mark, but in some ways embarrassingly close to the mark. When God speaks to us and surprises us and jolts us away from this bargaining, um, he then gets through and we realize that it's okay to be entertained. Now, let me make a, a very brief excursus to explain how we got to the place that we did. And then let me get back to some suggestions about entertainment um, and some biblical reflections. And I hope we'll, I'll be able to spend a good amount of time with uh, questions and answers because that, that's, that's the best part, at least it is for me. Um, one of the reasons that we are in a bargaining society is that leisure has replaced rest. And um, one of the reasons that leisure has come to replace rest <coughs> is because leisure has come to compensate for a wrong concept of work. In the Bible, particularly since the fall, work is considered good, though fallen. And though certainly work is not an end in itself, it will not bring us to utopia. And in order to contrast to Work which is good, though fallen, God gave us a day for rest, the Sabbath. And he gave us many other moments for rest besides the Sabbath. Now, I don't want to get into the issue of the Sabbath here. That, that's not my purpose. 
But um, my purpose is to say that God has ordered into our lives um, because of the divine pattern, he himself using it for the creation, that there be a moment or moments of refreshing. Now, most of us probably here believe that at the center of, of Sabbath rest should be gathering with God's people and celebrating and worshiping in a direct kind of way. Uh, most of us would believe that it's entirely appropriate on the Sabbath um, to, um, to visit the poor and to uh, ha- devote our times to diaconal ministry in a, in a special way. But um, many of us haven't thought through as well as we should what it means to be refreshed on the Sabbath. And Paul was refreshed by his friend Onesiphorus in prison, 2 Timothy 1.16. Friendship is something wonderfully refreshing. Uh, at least it was for Paul, it certainly is for me. There's nothing like spending time with a good friend. Um, some of us who are happily married consider that our, our, our spouse is our, is our best friend. Um, I remember the story of um, a, a young man who had fallen deeply in love with this woman and they were planning to get married. And um, the, young, the, the young man had a younger brother who would sort of watch them. They would spend time sitting and staring at each other and the younger brother said, I don't understand this love thing. They, they don't do anything. You know, they, they talk a little bit and they just sort of stare at each other. And, uh, of course, I suppose when the younger brother would come up, to, when it would be his turn to fall in love, he would understand that that's exactly right. We like being with the other person. Conversations are good, of course, and we need to talk. Um, but um, we just like to be together. Friendship doesn't have to be marriage, of course, is, is, is something refreshing. Um, and um, there's a, a time to rest, and there's a time not to rest. Jesus chides his um, disciples in Gethsemane, almost sarcastically saying, okay, take your rest, because I'm going to go on now uh, in another direction. But there is a time that is appropriate for rest. Um, Only fools labor endlessly. To that, the wisdom literature of the Bible says all they've accumulated, all their goods are going to go to someone else. You know, why are you spending your whole life investing in something that's not going to last? Um, Even in the Old Testament, the land must rest. Uh, Letting a field be fallow is an important part of keeping the field healthy. Um, the, I, you know, I grew up in France, and the French have wonderful justifications for rest. Um, like when they go away to their summer home, they typically will not rent their main home because they'll say the home needs a rest. And I, you know, there's something to that. Um, uh, just leave the home for a while. Don't have it always occupied and always busy. Even homes need to rest. Um, now, uh, biblically speaking, there's far more to rest than just a day off, a day of refreshment. The Sabbath is far more than just not working as you do the other six days. 
Um, the Sabbath is a sign. It's a sign of, of grace. It's a sign of the heavenly rest, which we've entered into and will finally enjoy in an unbroken way in eternity. Um, Jesus is constantly reminding his disciples about how God brings rest that you can't earn by toiling. The flowers of the field. Um, Solomon was not arrayed in more glory than they, but they don't toil. They're just there. Um, if you've had the joy of climbing mountains, which, um, which is one of my favorite things to do, one of the great joys is to get high enough so that you'll see flowers that, can't, that don't grow in other places. Um, there's a, a flower in, in, in Switzerland, the Edelweiss, which the law forbids you to pick because it only grows in, in, in certain parts of the mountains at a certain altitude, and it's particularly beautiful. And the Swiss government, rightly, doesn't want anybody to commodify the beauty of the Edelweiss. God is constantly reminding us um, in the Bible that true entertainment is not the frenetic toiling of work and then compensated by leisure. It's the goodness of work completed and accomplished and complemented by the goodness of godly rest. One of my favorite names in the Bible is Noah. Um, if you read the context uh, of Genesis 5, uh, towards verse 29, um, you'll see that there's a lot of striving and toiling. There's, there's a lot of living and dying. And then God sends Noah, which actually means rest or comfort. He brings a man into the world who signifies that there's something more than just toil. Now, um, so much could be said about the practical way in which we might enact uh, worship, uh, we might in enact uh, rest. Um, and uh, there are a lot of caricatures out there. Um, people complain that Sunday is not a day of rest because we have to go to church, we have to make a meal. It's not, no different from the others. It's a particularly not a day of rest for the minister. Um, the idea of the Sabbath in the Bible is not ceasing from activity. It's changing one's orientation to contemplate more directly the generosity of God. It's what Aviva Cox called time. And um, although the minister is the leader of people who are worshiping in public and therefore helping them more than in any other uh, day of the week to, to, to plan this time, he's leading them in, in the contemplation of, of, of the, gen the generosity of God. And so he's a leader in the rest business. Um, rightly so, we scoff at the entertainment industry, because it has taken us so far away from uh, the biblical notion of rest. But if we could come back to what the Bible wants for us, we could see how precious this commodity is, so precious that it would give us the shock of recognition, and we'd realize how wrongly oriented our lives are much of the time. Let me give you four examples of rest that have been very helpful to me. The list could go on at great length. Uh, and then uh, we, can, we can have um, a bit of a discussion. Um, 
One example of, of restful activity for me is laughter. Um, Peter Berger, we mentioned him earlier, wrote a, a wonderful book called Redeeming Laughter, in which he tries to say that humor is far more than just um, a kind of cynical approach to life or helping to make life go along or a lubricant in the tough uh, machinery of of life. Um, Humor is what he called a signal of transcendence. Now, Peter Berger has a whole theory, which you can can contemplate, uh, about how um, transcendence gets through to our ordinary gray horizontal life in a lot of surprising ways. And it shows us that there's more to it than just the here and now. And one of the great signals of transcendence um, is, is, is laughter. Now, there's, there's healthy laughter and there's unhealthy laughter. Cynicism is a kind of um, unhealthy mocking of things that are wrong, both in order to denounce them, which could be helpful, but also to, to be superior over them. There's a lot of superiority in this. Nothing is sacred. Nothing uh, is there that can't be joked about. And the cynic is best who can joke about things that don't seem to have anything funny to them. But good laughter um, is of several folds. First of all, um, good laughter sometimes tells us that evil is going to be punished and goodness is going to be rewarded. You know the joke about... This is time for a joke, right? Um, You know the joke about these two guys that are walking along uh, with heavy backpacks, and they're in the jungle, and they're walking along a difficult path, and suddenly they hear this loud roar behind them. And one guy uh, takes off his knapsack and pulls out his uh, running shoes. The other guy said, you know, this is... Silly, you can't outrun a lion. To which he says, well, I don't have to. I just have to outrun you. Okay. Now, <laughs> kind of a sick joke. But um, now, and I'm glad you laughed because my point is, why do we laugh at this? Because, we, because cleverness is a dim shadow, a dim reflection of, of the goodness that's going to overcome evil. Um, why do we laugh when uh, Charlie Chaplin is caught in the eating machine in modern times. Um, you know, remember the, where he, they, somebody invents this eating machine and, and it's a robot that brings food to your mouth and, and so forth. And of course, the whole thing goes wrong. There's food all over the place. He's stuck in the thing. And uh, it's really absurd. Uh, of course, uh, he's making the point that um, some parts, some promises of modernity are just doomed to fail and they're just silly. They're just foolish if, you don't, if we'd only think about it. Uh, so laughter can help us uh, also to... Um, to see that some things should not be taken so seriously. Now, you hesitate to say that in a world that is, that is so uh, cynical about everything. But, you know, a person who is doctrinaire and can't laugh, whether his doctrine be Christian or Marxism or Freud, Freud um, is suspect. Uh, if you can't laugh about the way you embrace your theology, not about the depths of it, 
then there's probably something not right about you. Uh, and psychologists will tell you that someone who's unable to to laugh or to enjoy humor may be psychologically in trouble, maybe not well. So laughter um, is more than a lubricant. It's more than just uh, helping to make things go better. It's a, it's a signal of transcendence. And uh, so Christians ought to have a great sense of humor. Uh, you'll not find a lot in the scripture about humor. Although, if you know where to look, there's more than we might think. Scripture is full of irony. And irony is one of the great forms of, of uh, laughter that I think is redemptive. Um, Isaiah 44 is a, is a strong critique of idolatry. And uh, I think if we knew Hebrew better and ancient Near Eastern culture better, we'd be, we couldn't read that chapter without sort of chuckling. Because he's saying, look, you make these, you cut down the tree, you, you give this thing eyes and, and nose and ears and, and mouths, and then um, you, you kneel down and worship it, even though it can't speak, as though, as though it were better than God who can, who can speak. Um, it's, idolatry is silly. It's funny. So there's a time to laugh at things that are wrong. Um, and um, I cannot imagine our Lord Jesus um, ministering to his friends without a certain amount of, of levity. Um, what was he doing in the wedding at Cana as he sat down at the tables with his good friends before he did his first miracle? I can't imagine that he was engaging people in deep theological conversation. He was enjoying his friends. Um, and, and after all, he did turn water into wine and the better wine than they'd had before. Now, there's lots in that that's a statement about the way God brings joy to his people. But part of the joy is certainly just the, the sheer delight that God can trump any kind of joy we can bring into the world with even uh, better wine. I rather imagine we'll spend a good part of our time in heaven um, just laughing and enjoying God. There's a very deep difference, and I'll be talking a little bit about this tonight at the, at the jazz concert, between happiness and joy, of course. And, and I think much of our uh, modern culture it cultivates uh, happiness, not, not joy. And, and joy is a very different thing. Uh, joy comes um, with, um, with a cost. Uh, joy has to go through the valley of the shadow of death before it can enjoy the banquet table and the abundance. Um, but um, part, of, part of good redemptive laughter um, is, is enjoyment. Um, or part of enjoyment is expressed through good, redemptive laughter. So um, that's one means. I'm not particularly a funny person, but I love to. Uh, I love to laugh. I love to listen to jokes. I love to uh, uh, spar with people, and I think that's a part of of um, of, of, of entertainment that that's it's healthy. A second one, which is probably shared by a lot of people in this room, is. Athletics. Um, I used to be a decent athlete, and um, I still love watching sports. Um, and um, of course, that too has succumbed to a, a, an entertainment, money-driven commodification. But um, nevertheless, there's something really healthy about athletics that is entertaining. Um, Paul says that um, 
sports profit for a little, godliness profits for a great deal. And I think if you only had that verse in Scripture, you'd think that, well, you, you just measure the profitability. But I'm not here speaking about sports primarily because of the, they are profitable. Of course they are. If you're not in shape, um, your body's not in tune, you're not as happy a camper. And I, I, I think Paul is simply saying, you know, go ahead and get some, get some uh, exercise. But uh, there's something about sports that, that's, that's more than, than just functional. Um, the best game in the world is, of course, soccer, football. And um, I'll, I'll debate you uh, to the end on, on that if you have another opinion. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but, um, and the best soccer in the world is Brazilian. And um, the reason that Brazilian soccer is, is the most beautiful sport in the world is because it is samba football. Right? Um, these, these men are, are out there dancing. I mean, it's beautiful. They, of course, they're, doing, they're not just esthetes. They're trying to ball into the goal, and they're trying to shove each other around. Uh, but there's a strategy to it. There's a, there's a beauty to it. There's a, there's a ballet to, to, to soccer football. And, and beautiful sports are like that. Um, they, they kind of lift you out of what you think you can do in an ordinary way, and, and, and they give you this delight at... Um, the interplay, uh, the, the strategizing, the fainting, uh, what you can do with this round object is extraordinary. Um, sports is, is just, at its best, is wonderfully entertaining. Sadly, it's become so driven uh, by television and, and uh, celebrity culture that uh, we're, we're, we're in, a, in danger of losing. Um, third, you'd expect me to say this as a French person, um, meal. Um, eating is a very delightful thing. Um, and uh, here, uh, I think we Americans lead the world in neglecting the fine art of eating uh, with our fast food industry. Um, you know, God could have given us pills, you know, uh, if he wanted us to just get fed. Instead, he gave us the table and conversation and enjoyment um, and um, you can't converse if you eat fast. Uh, doesn't look good. It's rude. And um, you don't enjoy the food either. So that the art, the, the, the art of sitting at a table, not every meal can be like this. But how sad it is that we wolfed on our food at a drive-in McDonald's where we could sit down and uh, commune with our friends over, over good food. Um, have you read this book? French women don't get fat. Uh, it's totally delightful. Um, it doesn't happen to be true, but it's... <laughs> well, it's, it, there's some truth to it. Um, but she, uh, she has this view of the meal that's almost religious. Um, and uh, her, her thesis is, you know, all of these diets which deprive you of certain kinds of, of foods... Um, are, you know, are really off base because what you really need to do is just eat well but moderately. And, um, you know, she's the head of Veuve Clicquot or something, so I don't know how moderately she eats, but um, she, she says that it, it, you, the reason you don't get fat is because um, you're not using food as a kind of either end in itself or as a thing to be scientifically 
dissected so that you're doing the right thing to your body. You're eating food because it's part of life. It's part of communion. It's part of enjoyment. And there's recipes in the, in the book which are kind of fun. So um, meals um, are a marvelous way for, for entertainment. There's a time for long, leisurely meals. There's a time for shorter meals, of course. Uh, time for a quick sandwich. I'm not saying that we should just sit down and have a three-hour meal um, three times a day or anything like that. But uh, this is this is a, a forgotten a forgotten human art. And of course, uh, we know that a large part of heaven will be sitting around the banquet table of the Lord. What are we going to be doing at that banquet table? Well, I'm wagering we're going to be eating. Uh, as well as enjoying one another and enjoying the host of the banquet, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourth, uh, the arts. And so many of the arts uh, do different things for different people, and there's so many different genres. Um, the, the art form that I've invested most time in is music, but I love the visual arts, I love poetry, um, love dancing. And again, like Berger's Signals of Transcendence, the arts, in one way, are gratuitous. And it's their very uselessness that tells us that there's more to it than just pure functionality. Now, I, I believe that art ought to have a function in society, many functions, uh, but you can't reduce it. You can't reduce the arts to their, to their function. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, in his wonderful little book, Art in the Bible, says, when I look at the pre-Columbian silver or African masks or ancient Chinese bronzes, not only do I see them as works of art, but I see them as expressions of the nature and character of humanity. Tolstoy said, Art is a human activity having for its purpose the transmission to others of the highest and best feelings to which we have risen. In uh, my favorite painter, I think, if you have to have a favorite, um, is Paul Cezanne. And... Um, this painter helps me to see in a way that textbooks and philosophy books don't. Um, he uh, painted maybe 20, 30 times the great Saint-Victoire mountain outside of Aix-en-Provence, this big, awkward granite structure. Uh, but he, none of them is the same. And, and he had lots of reasons for painting this object. Um, it gives off impassive forms of emotional force. Uh, the intensity that Cezanne brings to every brushstroke spins a halo around objects and figures so that he's somehow distancing himself from the very things that he's rhapsodizing. The truest classicist offers transcendence without catharsis, says Jed Pearl in The New Republic. And the Saint-Victoire is a mountain full of symbolism, too, because it's about victory. It's about rising from the earth up to heaven. Artists at their best can help us to see while we simply enjoy what's there. Uh, music does this in ways that are mysterious and powerful. Uh, okay, we have, uh, we have a bit of time here. Um, so let's, let's have some discussion and um, see where it takes us. I'd love to hear your thoughts, not just questions. You probably have some uh, thoughts of your own about about this area, Mr. Pastor. Yeah. Oh, 
I, I was looking for the, my, my notes. I think they're over there. They, there's a study that's been done not too long ago some of a number of United States major uh, colleges and universities which comes to the conclusion that the major problem of students is boredom. And uh, they uh, compensate for that boredom, or sometimes it's called emptiness, with um, activities that are trying to jolt them in the wrong direction uh, through an experience, uh, whether it be drugs or sex or, you know, just some... Um, now, I don't know how fair the study was, uh, how widespread, but I think one of the reasons for boredom uh, is affluence. Um, we have so much at our disposal. Um, what more is there for us? Not much, so I guess there's nothing to do. Um, we brought our kids up in France, which, believe it or not, is is not as affluent and not as uh, ahead in some ways, or if that's the word, um, in terms of nurturing their kids and giving them things. You don't grow up as fast in France as you do here. I think Juanita would confirm this. Um, so our kids, you know, like it, as teenagers, would go to parties where they would play pick up sticks, you know, and, uh, and love it um, because, or they'd sing. I remember at birthday parties where um, somebody would start a song at school and they would just sit and sing the song. Um, it's hard to imagine American teenagers being entertained by picking up sticks or singing uh, folk songs. Um, uh, and I, I think it's because we have so much. And we give so much to our children that we um, we then uh, raise the bar higher and higher. And the, if you can't do that, then you come crashing down with emptiness and, 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 and boredom. Uh, I think there's pressure on the church to entertain in the wrong way. Uh, to, you know, to have more visuals, uh, more clapping, more you know, because that's what they get outside. So when they come inside, we better not. We have to compete with all that stuff. Um, and this is very, it's very difficult to, to reverse that. My favorite remedy for boredom is to take your children, or, or it doesn't have to be children, it's adults as well, and, and go to a, uh, a third world country in a hardship area uh, for a missions trip and um, have, have them confront um, people who have nothing, um, who are struggling, sometimes who have much deeper joy and a better sense of who God is, uh, you know, than, than, than we do, maybe precisely because they, they don't have much. Now, I don't believe in a enforced poverty or anything like that. Um, I, 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 don't th I think, you know, that's a, a, a false remedy to uh, the problem of boredom. It's just, it's just sort of make yourself poor. But I, I think there's something about help, helping people to see really needy people that can lift them out of um, boredom. Years ago, you remember um, the uh, Cross on the Switchblade? Um, uh, Dave Wilkerson wrote the book, and he, he this is back in the 50s, I think. He said um, he found himself watching TV three or four hours a day. Uh, the average American watches more than three or four hours a day of TV, actually. And he said to his wife, what if we sold the TV and with the money... Uh, and the time we used to spend, we went to New York and helped teenagers. Um, and they did that, and out of that came Teen Challenge. It's an amazing ministry to, to drug addicts and so forth. 
again, that's not the answer for everybody. Um, um, you don't, you, we're not to escape from the world, but I think sometimes confronting need um, can really help shake you out of out of out of boredom. Ultimately, it's a it's a question of you know who's your God? You know, is he a God who's there to entertain you and please you in the wrong sense, or is he a God who is done so much for you that you now want to do all you can for him and that, that lifts you out of boredom big time lots of questions okay can you moderate because I I, 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 I I thanks mm. what a wonderful question how um. <laughs> no <laughs> um, yeah it's basically uh, if if you uh your art form uh, involves uh, creating expectations and fulfilling them, which is something that Jeremy Begbie says in his book about theology and music and time. Um, and it's particularly true of musicians like Bach. How can we um, do the same in a culture that is uh, creating expectations of such, such low-level uh, pleasures? Um, well... I think, you know, there's the old balance of being in the world but not of it. Um, we can't be nostalgic and simply go back to Bach and write Bach for today. Um, uh, but nor can we uh, sort of just embrace uh, all the low-level expectation type of, of music and art that we're, we're surrounded with. We have to forge somehow a third way and uh, that third way, I think, will involve uh, bringing people where they are into a higher place. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of wonderful music out there that does this. It's not cheap gratification. It um, it helps you to see and to hear uh, in this way of expectation and fulfillment. Um, and, and it's not Bach, but it's got some of the same imagination and intricacy as Bach. And... Uh, I think we need to find those, as musicians and as artists, we need to find out how to do that. Um, very difficult. We, we need each other. We need to talk to each other about these things. We need to share um, so that we don't fall into just default modes of, of uh, base pleasures. Um, I try to discover musics from different people groups or from sources that aren't the usual sources um, in our culture, in the Western culture, to just see what's going on out there that might be a little different from the norm. And there's a, a huge amount, actually. And it's very some of it's very inspiring. Um, and I think we need to be educated about it and, and learn to listen to it and let ourselves be inspired by, uh, by, by this and integrate it into our own work. Um, one of my favorite artists, some of you will probably know, is the uh, Japanese-American Makoto Fujimura, Mako. And he, um, what he has done is he has taken elements of Japanese objective art uh, with paints that he makes himself that takes over a year to make. And um, he, uh, he does these large uh, abstract forms that are full of personality and meaning and... Um, Sometimes he'll title them so you'll know where he's going. Uh, now, he's taken, um, he's taken what many Christians would assume to be an out-of-bounds form of art, which is non-objective, 
And it's the most Christian thing you could, you could imagine because it's very um, moral, very instructive, very redemptive. And I think the same in music. Sometimes um, bringing, fusing um, elements from one tradition into another can bring new life uh, to, to those elements. African-American music is a great example of that. Taking um, European music as it came to the States or the colonies um, and then marrying with that West African elements that brought out things in the European music that nobody knew was there and gave, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, so sometimes the answer is in discovering things that other people are doing from other parts and bringing it in, always slowly and deliberately and patiently, never as a, as a gimmick. Um, the last thing I'd say about this, Jeremy's a good friend of mine, and we've, we've worked a lot on projects together. Um, I, I do think he has a somewhat limited understanding of how music works when he writes about it, not when he plays it or shows it. Uh, expectation and fulfillment is a very small part of what music does. And it happens that Bach does a lot with that. And I think it's biblical, you know. What, that's what Revelation is, you know, promises and then fulfillment. But um, music acts in, or articulates its meaning in, I think, many more ways than he brings out in, in that book. And we need to engage in some of those many more ways. What aspects of entertainment should be included in worship? Is there a place for it? Um, in worship, let me clarify the terms. Um, now, I presume when you say worship, you're speaking of the Sunday morning gathering of, uh, or Sunday gathering of God's people, or are you using it in a broader way? Be okay. See, for me, the distinction is very important because I believe that all of life is worship. And um, so uh, when I'm at a Saturday night concert, I'm worshiping God and, and being edified because it's wonderfully entertaining. And I think entertainment, in, in the sense we've been talking about it, has a lot to do with it. Um, when I'm worshiping God Sunday morning, entertainment in the sense of rest is at its height. We're to be entertained by being refreshed and hear God's word and celebrate together and so forth. But entertainment in the sense that... Uh, I'm at a Saturday night dance. I don't, I'm not doing that Sunday morning. Um, this is a time for concentrated reflection on God's word as it's uh, rightly divided. Uh, it's a time for um, singing together to the praise of God. Um, and so while, you know, eat, eating a good meal or sports or, or whatever or humor are wonderfully appropriate, that's not what you're primarily going to do in Sunday worship. Uh, and I think there's no verse that says, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. But in the Presbyterian tradition, which I come from, um, there's a distinction often made uh, in, about public worship um, of the elements and the circumstances. The elements always have to be there. It's things like preaching, uh, hearing the word of God, singing, uh, the, the sacraments, Holy Communion um, and, and baptism. Um, some would add uh, almsgiving, uh, the, the offering. And, and so there are these set, without these, you're, you're not in a Sunday worship gathering. But the circumstances may vary 
there's nothing in the Bible that says you, you've got to do this at 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, nothing in the Bible that says your songs must be from the 19th century. Um, so there's a, a, lot of, um, a lot of variety possible in the circumstances. And it's always a question of cultural sensitivity, uh, biblical principles, wis- wisdom to know what to bring in. You know, some people say rock and roll music doesn't belong in the church. Um, I'm unable to say that because I think there are elements from the rhythms and the sounds of rock that are actually very appropriate for certain types of worship songs. Uh, but you, that's a thing to decide based on what your congregation looks like, where you are, and, and, and so forth. So um, I think the elements and circumstances are helpful distinction. When you're not in the Sabbath uh, worship celebration, um, then the questions are the same, but just in a different mode. Um, you know, I'm, it's Monday morning, and um, what are my options for entertainment? Well, I'm going to have a nice meal at lunch um, before going back to work, um, and that's going to be my entertainment, which is right. I'm going to go to a concert that night. That'll be good entertainment. I'm going to go see the basketball team or whatever it might be. Um, so, so you see, to me, the terms matter a lot, what we're talking about. Um, what you're probably, behind your question, and it certainly would be in my mind, is much of our Sunday public worship celebration in, across the country has become indistinguishable from some of the perfectly legitimate other forms of entertainment during the week. And that, you know, that's probably something we need to lean against get out of a job here. Follow up on Betsy's question. Um, Chuck Swindoll has made a statement, something like, if I remember correctly, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. And I wonder if you could uh, unwrap that a little bit, and uh, especially as it relates to the worship part of that. Can, follow up on Not to pass the book, but can you, can you tell me what he means? I mean, what does he... I'm not sure I understand what he means. I'm, I'm really, I'm not making it up. I don't, I'm not, I don't follow it. What do you think he means? My interpretation is that, uh, that we um, obviously frequently worship our work and spend so much time at that. that oh, that's everything. I see. And that he's against that? Yeah. Okay. And then that we, um, we work at our play, our entertainment. We put so much into it. <laughs> That that's uh, it's an effort rather than an enjoyment of it, and then that uh, I'm, my interpretation is we play at our worship. Uh, we're not serious enough about the worship and uh, taking a very superficial approach to it. Okay. Well, I'm if, not sure that's the right interpretation. If that's what he's saying, I I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, there's uh, worshiping your work may, means you're turning work into something messianic, and that's one of the great errors in in, in history. Uh, from Marx uh, to to Hitler to uh, Lenin to many tyrants, um, they all said, "If you work harder, you'll be free." And that's, um, you know, I think some extreme capitalists would say the same thing. Um, and um, so I, I agree with that. Um, you, I guess, working hard to play. Um, yeah, you can. I suppose, you know, like those Chevy Chase movies about the family vacation, you, you, you plan so much and it always goes wrong, you know. And, um, 
and then playing at worship. Um, I don't know what. I guess there are churches that don't take worship seriously. My my criticism would be if there's churches that are stumbling in the public worship. Um, they're sometimes one-dimensional. Like there are churches that are so seeker-friendly that they are seeker-driven. Um, there are other churches that are so inward and and purely God-centered that they don't have a mind for the visitor and so forth. I think there's imbalances. Um, I suppose you could find churches that play, but most of the churches I know, if there's an imbalance, it's, it would be in one of those areas rather than because they're taking it too casually. I'm sure you could find churches that do that. This sort of touches on part of Fred's question. Where do you find the balance uh, with, with so much need uh, are all around us all the time um, that we could be spending time trying to address? Um, where's the balance between seeking after entertainment and, and basically trying to fit, fulfill the needs that we see around us? Well, when, if you're asking about the balance in each individual life, I think that has to be decided with wisdom and prudence and with a sense of calling. Um, you know, some of us are more uh, called to certain tasks where entertainment has to be worked in on, on the run. You know, others are called um, to be much more... Um, uh, balance between work and what's called entertainment. Some people are called into the entertainment business. Um, I don't th- know that there's a one. I don't think there's a way you could phrase the answer that says here's here's the here's the clue. I mean, we have one strong clue from God Himself, who who gives us a day in six. Now that may I don't know if that's a magic proportion, but that tells us something. You know that we do. Um, also. You know, we sleep a third of our lives. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Um, if God wanted us to do more, you know, why didn't he make us so we don't need sleep? Um, but he obviously doesn't. There's something about sleep that is not just functional, but it's a reminder of, of who we are and what, we're, what we need. Um, so those are clues be- based in the creation. But I don't, I'm not sure there's one answer for, for everybody, uh, sometimes it's a family decision. Sometimes it's a prudential decision. Sometimes it's a decision of necessity. You know, you're fighting a war. You don't have a lot of time for, for entertainment. You should uh, you should stop at some point. You know, the, in World War II, the British Army always stopped at four for tea in, in the middle of a battle. Hey, and they won. <laughs> so... There's one... Can I get this one over here? Go ahead. Hmm. We have a son who works for a major um, network. And what does he do? Uh, Well, um, you know, I think he would say uh, hold the highest standards um, in terms of um, what you want a society to become. Uh, That doesn't just mean always you know, teaching them or being pedagogical. Uh, but your your news programs have to be fair and responsible. Your um, entertainment has to be measured and edifying and, and not over the top and, and so forth. You have to, I think Christians, 
Oz Guinness once said, I don't know if it comes from him or if he's quoting somebody, but he says, the, the trouble with American um, public media is not that there aren't enough Christians in it, but that those Christians who are in it aren't, act, aren't producing Christianly. Um, now, is that a cheap shot or is it, is it true? It, you know, there are more Christians in, um, in the networks than we, we might think. And yet, when you look at what comes out, you wonder, well, what are they doing? You know, we're, and uh, I, I think the answer is, is complex. We, we had a friend, one of our students came from uh, ABC News. And, uh, you know, there, there's Bible studies at ABC News. And um, uh, Peter Jennings used to go to it. And, and, uh, but then he said, you know, it was an s- utter separation between the kind of fellowship and the, and the worship and so forth than what was actually done in the production room. Uh, they didn't seem to bridge one to the other. And so, you know, I think Oz is right about that. If we, if we were more Christian, you know, as dentists or soldiers or politicians or entertainment people, we might see uh, more progress. A lot of times Christians just haven't thought this through. They're, they're, you know, they fall into what we used to call pietism. And um, so I think with, with a lot of work and education, and, and seminars like we're having here, we can begin to move in, into places where Christians have a way to think Christianly in their different spheres of, of operation. And, um, it, you know, God gave us this culture. It's a gift. We sometimes think, you know, maybe it's a mistake that we're here. We wish we were in the Middle Ages. It would have been easier. Um, <laughs> third of the people would be dead from the plague. Um, but, uh, you know, God gave us our culture. And so... We should thank God for being in these times and, and uh, look for what's good in them as well as uh, avoid the bad and, and then try ask him to become, that we may become more thoughtful, responsible, uh, God-fearing Christians in our disciplines. And th- there I think we'd see real change across the board. Okay, uh, we need to pull it to an end here. And I want you to know that we have targeted this next hour and 15 minutes for entertainment. <clears throat> There will be some athletic ability to walk across uh, uh, to the family center. We'll have a meal and um, uh, laugh as much as you can. And on the way out, there's some art that's hanging in the foyer. So what we would like for you to do is have a wonderful hour and a half. Let's pray together. Work your way over. Remember, uh, there is enough food. Uh, If you haven't signed up, please uh, go to the welcome desk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the nourishment that you give to us as we share our lives with one another. And thank you for your word that gives perspective on our everyday routines, that they uh, really are a window into the depth of your care for us. And I thank you that we can now spend this time together and share our lives around food and with laughter and sharing the thoughts that have been stimulated this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the food and strengthen us in all ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.